Well, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we now turn our attention to your word, we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would hear what you have to say to us. Use this time for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, today is the second sermon from the book of Judges that coincides with the readings that have been in in the bulletin. Next week, we will be covering the book of Ruth. And again, I strongly encourage you to read it before next Sunday. It is a beautiful and powerful story and only four brief chapters. As with uh, last week, we will not cover the entirety of the reading, which is actually the second half of the book of Judges. Yet I I do need to provide some background to our text, some of which will be a repeat from from last week. At this point, Israel has been in the Promised Land for about 300 years, a little more. This is after the death of Moses and after the 30-year period when Joshua led Israel in the conquest of the land, and then about 300 years. And Israel uh, took a whole bunch of that land when Joshua was alive, as God promised that they would. However, the Israelites did not do what they were supposed to do and eliminate all the idols and all the idol worshipers that contaminated the land. And as God said would happen, Israel succumbed to the cultures of the land. And things went from a time of blessing to bad to worse as the people and their idols, those people that were supposed to be eliminated, became thorns and distractions to Israel, and Israel abandoned Yahweh and went after and served other gods. According to the book of Judges, during this time, each man did what was right in their own eyes. That kind of captures the time period, and it was not good. During this time, Yahweh would intermittently pull back his hand of blessing and protection and let the people of Israel uh, uh, be kind of beaten up and oppressed by those people that they had left in the land. And when things got really bad, the Israelites would cry out to Yahweh for help, and our merciful God would send a deliverer to rescue them, after which, for a bit... Israel would kind of get their act together, kind of. And then the deliverer, the judge is what they were called, would die. And Israel would go back to their old ways and the cycle would repeat. Last week, we looked at the call of Gideon, who judged Israel after Athenial, after Ehud, Deborah, and another one, Shamgar, who we don't know that much about. Before Gideon died... The people of Israel asked Gideon to be their king. And Gideon refused for himself and for his sons, making the point that God was their king. Then we read in chapter 8, verse 33, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals. This is followed by the story of Abimelech, Gideon's son from a concubine from one of those people groups that was not even supposed to be around anymore. 
Abimelech went against the desires of his father Gideon and decided that he would become Israel's ruler, which led to Abimelech teaming up with some of his mom's relatives from the town that she was from, and, and he killed 70 of Gideon's other sons and took over. This led to a number of bloody battles and conspiracies, even within Abimelech's own camp. Eventually, both Abimelech and his co-conspirators are destroyed by each other. Again, this was a time when each person was doing what was right in their own eyes. After Abimelech, there were two other judges that we don't really know that much about, Tola and Jair. Uh, they too die, and that is where our text picks up today. So here our text for this morning, Judges 10, starting in verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Asherahs, the gods of Syria, the gods of, the, of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead, and the, and the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and, and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Thus ends the reading of the, our word. If that text sounds familiar, it is because I read something like it last week. Plus, I just read something similar to it in chapter 8. Plus, it is repeated numerous times throughout the book of Judges. Israel's sin cycle, repetitively captured in the book of Judges, is as follows. God blesses, Israel does what it is not supposed to do, Israel ends up in brokenness and worshiping other gods and serving other gods, God holds them accountable for their behaviors, Israel gets it or seems to get it and cries out to God for help. God responds 
and graciously restores his people who truly do not deserve it, but God does it because of who he is, because of a covenant he made with them, and because he was going to fulfill that covenant through these people and ultimately through his son. And then the cycle starts over. This cycle is found throughout the scriptures. This cycle is also found in our lives. In this message, I'm going to lump Israel's behavior and our behavior together. Since our behavior is so much like their behavior, which, by the way, is actually a major point of the scriptures. So what does our text tell us about Israel and about us? First, we start from a place of blessing every day. Our life is a gift, a blessing, something we did not earn or deserve, nor do we ultimately have any control over, nor can we make further life happen. Life is given to us, and it is a blessing. No other viewpoint is true. Some will object with the comment, you know, with comments like, well, it may be a blessing or a gift for us, but how is it a blessing for the poor baby born in Africa who's starving before they leave the womb and then they just suffer until they die? First of all, we should not take that bait. Such comments are fundamentally efforts to avoid addressing the fact that their life is a gift that they need to be thankful to God for that gift, and that they need to submit to God and his rule. Such objections are also usually based in a self-centered and self-aggrandized worldview that refuses to recognize that God is God, and God is good. And we do not and cannot understand a whole bunch of stuff. And yet God remains God and God remains good. Taking the bait and addressing the baby in Africa question or other distraction questions accomplishes nothing other than changing the conversation to something that is beyond our control, to something beyond our combined knowledge or ability to understand, and it has zero to do with you or us or the subject of self-responsibility. That really is the issue. The truth is that every one of us in this room is fortunate to be alive. Life is a gift from God. None of us deserve it. None of us made it happen. None of us can make tomorrow happen. Questions about what the God of the universe is doing or allowing in other places really have no bearing on those truths, and we need to cling to those truths. We and Israel start with a gift. That's where we are. We start with a blessing, life. On top of that, and in spite of centuries of Israel sinning against God, or in our case, 
a lifetime of sinning against God, God still blesses us. In the case of Israel, he'd given them the promised land. And then they, and then we, after being blessed, sin. We are blessed. We do what we are not supposed to do, which leads to brokenness. God holds us accountable for our behaviors, usually in ways less severe than an affront to a holy God actually deserves. We come to our senses. We cry out to God for help. And then in his sovereign and gracious and all-knowing time, he responds. And he forgives us. And he restores us. And the cycle starts all over again. Is it familiar to any of you? For what it is worth, that cycle is one of the reasons behind Paul's statement in Romans 7, 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? The answer, of, of course, is Jesus. And we're actually going to get to that later. Unique to this text, specifically within the book of Judges, is the degree to which Israel addresses their own sin. They appear to own it, at least verbally. They, they really seem to get it this time. They not only clearly confessed their sins, but they also gave specifics. Here, here verse 10 again. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God, and have served the Baals. At least verbally, Israel appears to be spot on in regard to repentance, which involves identifying the core issue being repentant of. And Israel got this one correct. They said they had sinned against God. Keep in mind that there certainly were plenty of other sins going on. Sexual perversity, for example, was characteristic of idol worship and that they had turned to, as well as idolatry. But, but at least verbally, they understood that the real issue was that they had sinned against God and forsaken him to serve other gods. And when it comes down to it, that is the fundamental sin of all of us. Romans says it this way. For the wrath of God, this is Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over, and it keeps going. 
the, the most fundamental way we sin is by failing to recognize God as God and to give him thanks. We don't commit adultery or theft or lie or commit idolatry or steal or envy first. We forsake God first by not recognizing him as God and by giving him thanks. When Israel cried out to God and acknowledged their primary sin was against God, they actually got that right. They also got some some other things right. In verse 15, at least verbally, they truly seemed to own their own behavior. And after they were rebuffed by God, which we'll look at in in a moment, they simply said, we have sinned. And then they said the only thing an honest sinner can truly say before a holy God, they said in apparent submission, do to us whatever seems good to you. Fundamentally, at least verbally, they completely threw themselves at the feet of God, giving up and saying they deserved nothing, placing themselves entirely at the mercy of God. That is repentance. And so far, we have a really good model of what true repentance looks like in this story. But then Israel made the mistake that we also too frequently make. They undermined all that they had said and done when they added one phrase. They said, only please deliver us this day. For all practical purposes, they were saying, now there, uh, we've confessed our sins to you, God. Now you do something for us. And the truth came out. They were merely weary of the consequences of their sin and simply wanted God to make things better. That was not true repentance. That is complaining or trying to manipulate God. When we come to our senses and realize we've made a mess of things with our sin and then go back to God only to try to get something from him saying, in words or deeds or hopes, if we're saying, I have repented, now give me something. And I have a phone going off in my pocket. No. I apologize for this. And if I knew how to turn this off, I would. Um, And that is not repentance. Too too frequently, we are like the kid who did something wrong and is told by his parents he now can't play his video games. The kid decides, with the hope of getting his gaming privileges back, to go to his parents and confess his sins. And he's even pretty convincing. Then, as the parent appears to be moved, he says, Now can I go play my game? it kind of undermines the the confession and reveals that real repentance was never there. True repentance would have the kid go to the parents and sincerely confess the sin that 
with with specificity and then say, and I will do whatever whatever it takes to show you I'm, I'm sorry. And you were right in your judgment. And thank you for all that you do, good parents. And then merely honor his parents as he should have been doing from the very beginning. That kid is going to get way more than permission to play his game. When we repent, we need to come to God in, in, in our confession with humility and submission, not with requests. The Israelites also got two more things right. They actually got rid of their foreign gods and they served the Lord. That's after this. They said they had, you know, the problem was that they got things a little bit out of order. The Israelites also got two more things right. They, they did get rid of their foreign gods and they did serve the Lord. The problem was that they got things out of order which revealed their ultimate lack of sincerity and understanding. They should have done those things first. To say they repented of forsaking God and and serving other gods twice at at this point and still have those gods in their house, well, that isn't exactly evidence of sincere repentance. And when it came down to it, God knew their hearts. And truly repenting of their sin against God was not what they were doing. That is why God responded the way he did, which is actually kind of shocking to hear God respond to them the way he did. Listen to the Lord's response after Israel cried to him. This is back in Judges 10. I'm starting at verse 14. See, I'm going to start at verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you. And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will not save you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of distress. It's difficult not to hear the Lord saying, Yeah, I've heard that before, guys. This time, I'm not going to save you. You have made your bed. Now lie in it. Israel was coming to him one more time, saying they were going to change, saying they were sorry, sounding sincere. But really, all they wanted was for God to bail them out again. And God made his point. This time, I'm not going to save you. Go make your appeal to those false gods you abandoned me for. One commentator says it this way. In God's response to the people's expression of distress... Yahweh recognizes and exposed the purely utilitarian and manipulative nature of their cry. The people have used him repeatedly simply to get them out of a difficult circumstance. In the past, he has responded to their pleas, but no more. 
Their confession sounds like true repentance, but God sees past their pious words to their treacherous and parasitic hearts. Pretty harsh. But we truly do need to be careful not to do the same thing. Remember, we are a lot like Israel. God wants true repentance. Not because he needs it, but because we need it. As long as we think that if we confess our sins to God, God has to forgive us, or he has to save us, or he has to bless us, we are completely missing the point. We are making God nothing more than a vending machine that we can get to do our bidding when we need his help, and the trick is to do a confession. And when we do that, we will never be able to have the relationship with God the way it was meant to be. God is God. And he is good. And God doesn't have to do anything for us. And we can't make him do anything for us. But he already has. He has blessed us. And we've turned our back on him. And we have no excuse. We simply need to acknowledge the reality of our sin, recognize that we are entirely at his mercy, recognize him as God, and give him thanks. And then enjoy him forever. If we don't do that, the cycle will start over as it does in the book of Judges, as it does in the rest of Scripture, and as it does in our lives. Finally, I want to look at the very last phrase in our text that says, And he, God, became impatient over the misery of Israel. What is not clear, according to the scholars, who who know a ton more than I can ever dream of knowing, is it's not clear what that actually means. God, did God eventually accept their confession as sincere and decide not to let them suffer further? Or did God dismiss their confession and leave them to their self-directed mess that comes in the next few chapters? Or I mean, it's just not really clear what it means. But what is clear is that God does not find pleasure in the misery of his people. Whether it's self-inflicted, or whether he allows it, or whether he causes it. He does not enjoy seeing them or us suffer. I can remember while getting paddled with a paint stick for something I did wrong, and my dad would say, now son, this hurts me as much as it hurts you. And I can remember thinking, are you kidding me? It's my butt that's getting smacked here, and that's what hurts. But I get it now. He loved me. He, would, he did not want to do that. He would have much rather held me or taken me fishing. But he did it, and it did bring me to repentance. And I did learn. As a parent who has had to discipline a child, I get it. It is not fun to see your child in misery for whatever reason. But God does allow it, and again, sometimes he even causes it. And the point, God remains God. 
and God remains good. And he does, and he did, grow impatient with our misery. So much so that he chose to put an end to the misery cycle of our sin once and for all. And he did that at a price and with greater pain to himself than we could ever come close to imagining. He put an end to that cycle by bearing the consequences for our sin that we deserved by dying on the cross for us. And while that sin cycle still lingers and is familiar to us, we have ultimately been freed from that body of death and from this body of death and from the misery of sin, both now and in the future. But only if we turn to him with true repentance and if we place ourselves and our trust in him and him alone and we recognize him as God and give him thanks. So where, where does that leave us? Well, we can learn from Israel, who is a lot like us, from what they got right and from what they got wrong. We, we can take to heart that God knows our motives when we come to him. We can also know with certainty that God does not like to see us suffer, regardless of the cause, which is usually self-inflicted. And we can know that God did not give up on us and has set in place a way for us to be free from that sin cycle and from the misery that results. But we need to get rid of the false gods that we have become enslaved to. And we need to truthfully and honestly acknowledge our sin of failing to recognize him as God and give him thanks. And then we need to place ourselves at his feet, completely at his mercy, recognizing him as God who is good and give him thanks. And when we do that, we will experience his blessing and we'll experience peace. And that's really what he wants for us. May we enjoy him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are patient with us. Thank you that though we fail so many times, when we come to you in sincerity, you just welcome us back. We ask that you would expose our motives and then help us to rest in simply who you are. In the name of Jesus, amen.